is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite regular guests is Dr. Rose. And that's our shorthand way of introducing Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein. And we're glad she's here to share some of her experience, and hopefully for you in the audience who are wondering how to raise a child or have a problem with a child and are wondering what to do about it, sometimes there's a lot you can do about it. And sometimes the doctors get a diagnosis wrong, and sometimes that's your intuition, but you're not sure whether to challenge that doctor. Because after all, he's the guy who went through medical school, and he knows better. And by the way, this is not a slam on doctors. We love doctors. But it's complicated, and a mother's intuition is profound and should always be a part of any medical mix. And Dr. Rose knows a lot about kids, and, well, my goodness, at her clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, she cares for 5,000 children. She's also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. And Dr. Rose, you know, the last time you were on, we were talking about young Christopher and his mom, Juana. And it was a bit, a bit about autism and how there was a diagnosis And sometimes that diagnosis isn't quite right. Sometimes it is. And we had gotten into the discussion of your daughter, Hannah. And talk for a minute before we get into the next case, uh, which is going to be about grace, the emotional, uh, what we like to call the emotional wild child. Um, But I want to talk about your daughter and about what we were talking about just before we came on the air, which is, you know, if you're a hammer, well, then everything the hammer sees is a nail. And if you're an autism specialist and a person comes in, a young child, and a couple of the symptoms seem to indicate autism, well, then maybe that's where the diagnosis leads. Talk about that with your own daughter, if you could, Dr. Rose. Oh, yes, I'd love to. Uh, so Hannah, who is now 17 years old, uh, was a, a babbler. She would speak all over the place, and, and she was very precocious with her words, but she was a very uh, sort of emotionally uh, off-the-chart kind of kid. And some strange things would set her off. And, and Dave would look at her and sort of say, what is wrong with this child? But when we went to, uh, to, to amusement parks and there were the, the uh, train would go around and the normal choo-choo would send her screaming and yelling, covering her ears and People would look around us, would look at her like, oh, oh, you have one of those kids. Well, the same thing would happen whenever we went into the, the bathroom, especially a, a public bathroom. And you know how those public bathrooms, sometimes they flush uh, without your, it's automatic flush? Yep. Well, Hannah would not even want to go into those stalls because she didn't know the precise moment when the toilet would flush itself. That would turn that kid into a, doc, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde moment and start screaming, yelling, covering her ears, and acting out. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what is wrong with this child? So we stopped trying to go to public bathrooms. So we start, you know, I, I'm a young mom, so I figure, well, why put her under that emotional duress? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And then I noticed that when she got frustrated and couldn't express herself or she didn't get something that she wanted or uh, for whatever reason, she was uh, very unhappy. She started flapping her hands and her hands would flap and then she would look like she was very anxious. Uh, And 
we I had gone to a medical conference uh, during that one of those times, uh, and the, one of the topics uh, was uh, developmental uh, delays and and uh, disorders. And of course, when you talk about developmental disorders, the topic of of uh, autism and autism autism spectrum disorders come up. Well, I read through the list again, and my eyes get wide big, and I said, "Oh my goodness." How did I not see this in front of me? Hannah has some of the diagnostic criteria of autism. And then I stopped myself. Wait a minute. My daughter's not autistic. My daughter may have a few of the criteria for the diagnosis, but she's not autistic. And then I started to ponder, and I started to talk with Dave, my husband, about her. He's, a, he's also a physician. So we talked about these things. We said, well, what if we were to leave her that way? What if we thought that instead of working through these symptoms and signs, we avoided the situations that evoked these symptoms and signs? Well, we would probably have a child that would have more and more of these characteristics of autism. And so... I, uh, with that information and that thought process going through my head, I said, well, then I guess my role as a mom and a person who really wants to develop her into the, the full potential of her abilities, I need to work with her to work through these symptoms and signs that she's having so that she knows before she goes in, in, into the toilet stall, that toilet's going, going to uh, flush itself. But what do we do? We know that it's going to do that, and we are braced for it. Look, nothing happens. And so I did a lot of preventive medicine that way and said, okay, we don't not go to the bathroom, or these things make you anxious. We're going to be okay, or we're going to go to the little train thing. And watch, it's so much fun, and the other kids are are having fun. You're going to have fun. Maybe not the first time, not when we get on there now, but you will start to have fun because this is a fun thing. And so we worked on those things. And, and I remember the first time that Hannah really tried it. She was like three and a half or four. She tried that little train thing. We still have the picture. She's sitting there very stoically, like like she's at an interview. And it was just so funny. She's trying to act like a big girl and get through this difficult thing for her. She's on a train. This is supposed to be fun. But she's working through it so hard that she actually looks like she's working. And I still love looking at that picture. But, of course, Hannah's not autistic. And she's very bright and loves to be in social, uh, in, in social environments now. Well, I'm good for you, Dr. Rose. And you actually got to practice what you preach. You were a coach in the end to your own daughter and got her through these things and avoided a diagnosis. And imagine if it had been, it had been the other way around and you just followed the diagnosis. My goodness. When we come back, we're going to talk about grace with Dr. Rose. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. American Stories, and we continue with Dr. Rose. 
one of our favorite regulars here on Our American Stories. And now we're going to talk about Grace, the emotional wild child. And we all know some, and thank goodness for them. And tell us a bit about Grace, Dr. Rose. Yes, of course. Well, Grace is a a very, uh, very sweet girl with a huge heart. And she was first brought to me when she was approximately, well, it must have been two years ago. So she was about seven. And her mom brought her in because she wanted a referral to a psychiatrist because Grace was having constant meltdowns. And it wasn't just temper tantrums. It was the fact that in any given situation, and sometimes unknown situations, we we couldn't figure out what had triggered this, Grace would start to cry. Grace would uh, just become a big puddle of jello. She would discombobulate, drop down to the floor, and you'd have to pick Grace up. Well, these started at first at, at home. Uh, and it could be that uh, there was a meal that she didn't like so much or that mom now had to work and it was a different schedule, time schedule than the one that Grace was accustomed to or that a big sister uh, was sick. And the list got longer and longer, but then it started spreading to school. And that's when the teacher called mom and said, I think she needs a psychiatrist. And from there, she came into my office so that she could have a psyche, a psych referral. So one of the doctors referred her to the psychiatrist. And mom uh, started giving her uh, medication so that her, her nerves would be calmed. But also the psychiatrist started spending time one-on-one uh, with Grace. Uh, after several sessions... Mom uh, had come in for a, a, a an appointment for th- that was that had nothing to do uh, with her uh, mental emotional status, and so I asked her how Grace was doing, and she said, "Well, not very well. It seems like we have to go to more medications, and and things are really not going well for her. So this anxiety and this depression has really gotten the best of her." And so that's when I asked her to, to uh, come in and make an appointment with me so that we could sit down and get to the bottom of it. Uh, in Grace's home, there was a lot going on. Mom had uh, separated uh, from, her, from Grace's dad. Uh, Mom herself was uh, very upset, very frustrated, very anxious, because here she was with, with uh, a, she's a newly single mom uh, with two girls, and she had to work full-time, and Grace was more and more of a handful. And so mom couldn't cope and was getting more and more anxious. And I said, have you noticed a trend? Is it that when you get more anxious, Grace gets more anxious and upset and, and emotionally labile herself? Mom stopped and said, yes, I do see that. And I said, Okay. I want you to understand that grace is a reflection of you. When you are upset, when you are anxious and frustrated, she is as well. Her little dinghy of a boat is being swept underneath waters with yours as yours is going down. You have to take a long breath and look at yourself before you start dealing with grace. 
because grace is just reflecting you. Maybe the person who needs some mental health uh, help might be yourself. How can I help you, Mom? How can, how can I help you to be more stable? How did she handle that, Dr. Rose? Oh, well, I, I, I just spoke to Mom and, and said, we, we all have difficult situations in life, and, and that doesn't make yours any easier to get through, but it, it does tell us that as moms, we have, to fit, we, we have to look inside and do whatever we can that is reasonable and true to deal with our problems before we come to our children and try to fix theirs and try, try to be a parent. And so mom started looking inside and started fixing on herself. That's when we saw the, the breakthrough with, with Grace. She again started doing well in school. She started to be able to control her emotions uh, and uh, be able to understand how to console herself when she was sad or when she thought about her dad who had left the home. She had, had, was able to sleep through nights again. She was able to not discombobulate when she didn't get what she wanted or what she thought that, that she should have. Now Grace is in fourth grade. She is one of the best students in her whole fourth grade class in her school. She is such a darling. And the one thing that I know about Grace is that Grace has a humongous heart. She feels other people's pain. And because of that, when her mom, who is the person that she loves the most, was going through this, she wasn't able to tell her mom, Mom, I feel, I feel so anxious and so emotional. She just shared in that emotionality, I call that sometimes. And so mom now knows it's not to be completely stoic and like you don't feel anything in front of your child, but they don't necessarily see, need to see us going through every single excruciating moment right in front of them. And so mom understands that for our children, we need to be strong. They need to see us as the leaders of our home. And this is what has been the emotional stability. She, never, she doesn't have to go to the psychiatrist any longer because her mom is her mental health therapist. And now Grace is doing very well. And, you know, kids don't know any better. And if there's tumult in a household, uh, this can prompt all kinds of problems, Dr. Rose, can it? I must, you must see that often. Well, and the thing about it is that they, it, when mom does, it has difficulty in being able to handle these difficult moments, the child thinks that that is the correct way to handle difficult moments. You fall apart. That's what you're supposed to do. Mom falls apart. I'm supposed to fall apart. And they don't understand being strong and being able to get through it day by day. And it hurts and it's difficult, but you do it because of the people that you love. And now I think that Grace understands that we don't fall apart when everything occurs to us because we need to be strong for those that we love. It's so true. Is there, a, is there a, a reverse in this, though, too, Dr. Rose? I know my wife and I have both worked hard on not having arguments in front of our child because we just don't want her to see that. We want to protect her, and I think we've both seen that in our lives, uh, arguments of adults and how it affected us. And the one time that we'd ever had a real loud argument in front of my little girl, I mean, she just started crying like it was the end of the world, and she went running into to Grandma's room. My wife's mom lives with us, and we were so beside ourselves. And then I thought, 
are we are we sheltering her a little too much? Uh, and can you do that? Can you be guilty on the other side, Doctor Rose? Uh, and yes, you can be because life needs to to uh, to reflect life, doesn't it? Yep. And I remember the same situation that we had with Hannah. Dave and I were arguing about uh, the most trivial of things: putting yep. up the Christmas tree. Yep. Dave doesn't like to put up the Christmas tree. I love to put up the Christmas tree, and so we were arguing, and it sounded like a real argument. And Hannah was about seven years old. She's hearing this whole thing, and she starts just crying. Mom and Dad are getting divorced. Yep. We look over at Hannah and we say, "What? <laughs> yep. Getting divorced? Over? We are over what? A Christmas tree, of course. <laughs> A Christmas tree. Oh, darling. Parents argue all the time. You don't understand how much they argue. In fact, we don't argue compared to how often parents argue. This yep. is normal." And she, of course, started laughing. And we tell the story. It's, it, it's the Christmas tree divorce. And, and Hannah laughed with it. And so, yes, you know, life is about balance, and you really have to live in the middle. And children need to understand. And so it's best to preempt that and have children understand mom and dad will argue. We do argue. Most of the time we do it behind closed doors so that you don't have to necessarily be involved in the argument. But we do argue, and when that happens, that doesn't mean we're getting divorced. We right. will work through it. We'll work through it, and that's what that's what we're supposed to do. And, Dr. Rose, thanks for all you do for all those kids. I mean, caring for 5,000 children is, hey, I have a, I have a, my hands full with one. And, uh, and, and thank you for all you do. And thanks for coming on the air. I know that it gives all the listeners solace, especially the ones who are raising kids and knowing that they can be a part of any diagnosis and must be a part of any diagnosis, particularly with professionals, with doctors, psychologists, and psychiatrists. Now, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, one of our favorite guests, Dr. Rose. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You bet. And again, this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. stories and one of the new additions to our show is our villages stories and we've been sending our recent college graduate faith to this retirement community famous retirement community perhaps the biggest in the country and we sent her down there just to make friends have a good time and bring us back some stories and by the way the villages is home and this is in florida by the way about an hour north of orlando and you've heard about it i'm sure but the Villages has over 157,000 residents, 2,200 clubs, that's activity and organization clubs, that kind, and then 600 holes of golf. And there's live music on the squares, all three of the squares, every single night but for big old storms. 
And in her recent trip, Faith was able to attend an honor flight. The Honor Flight Network is a nonprofit organization created to recognize and celebrate America's veterans. Our donations help to bring the World War II vets to D.C. to visit and reflect at the monuments to their lives. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, an estimated 640 World War II veterans die each day. Our time to express our thanks to these brave men and women is running out. But sadly, some of these veterans are either too old or too sick to make that plane trip. So sometimes the Honor Flight organization goes to where the veterans are. Faith was able to attend just such an event at the Villages. She brings us a story from one of these veterans. Jean Nupp is a World War II veteran, and a mere 92 years old, and an eventful 92 years it has been. After the Honor Flight, I had the opportunity of sitting down and talking with him for a little bit to ask him how his military career got started. Officer candidate, I, they come around one day and when I was in high school, this was in 1943, they said if you'd be interested in going into the Navy Air Corps, you come and take some tests. And I took tests and that's how I started. Going through, the Navy put me through college as part of this uh, training program, but I ended up in the regular Navy as an officer in the Navy. I served from 1943 to 1946. Probably the high point of my career, I was in Tokyo Bay when they signed the surrender agreement aboard the Missouri with MacArthur. And then shortly after that, I was on a ship that was sent to different parts of Japan and blow them up, all their military installations. And I spent three years and I came back and went back to college. Probably the most vivid, I would say being in Tokyo Bay when they signed the surrender agreement aboard the Missouri. How'd you feel? I I was glad it was over. (laughs) Say, good, let's get out of here, go home. How old were you? Let's see, at that point, I was 19 or 20. When that started, we got out of high school and went, went into the service. Now, returning from World War II was a very different experience than coming home from war today. For today's young soldiers, many feel separated from civilian society because so few of their peers have served in uniform. It wasn't like that in Jean's day. Many young men were drafted, and among those who weren't, many volunteered. So everyone knew at least one service member. So Jean's homecoming was about as smooth as it can be coming back from a world war. Came out of the Navy, went back to college, because the Navy sent me to college for a year and a half. So I came back and finished the same college I went to. Well, I got out of the Navy in 46, and I graduated in 48. I got a job right after I graduated with the Hoover Vacuum Cleaner Company. I was a field auditor. I traveled all over the country auditing the Hoover offices. So that's what I did for a few years. It's always interesting to ask what an older generation thinks of a current one. So I wanted to hear his thoughts on how things have changed. 
the country seemed more together rather than now. It seems kind of splintered and screwed up to me. Doesn't seem cohesive like it was during those days. Everybody was one game, one objective, and now it's kind of screwed up. How does that make you feel? I'm, uh, I, I'm glad I don't have much more to go with it. I'll tell you that. It was better in those days, really. But of all the differences that have occurred over time, Jean is most struck with how young people socialize. I mean, meeting people now, it's all computerized. See, in my day, you met at dances. You went to dances. You met girls at dances. That, that was it. Do you have any good stories from meeting girls at dances? I met my wife. Did you? How yeah. did that happen? We were in college, and they had this called, we used to have things called mixers. You'd go to the dance, there were the girls, there were the boys, and you danced and you mixed. And that's how it happened. And let's see, two years later after we met, three years we got married. And has she since passed? or? Yes. As a matter of fact, I've had bad luck with ladies. My wife died, then I then I came here, I joined the single club, met a lady there. We were kind of hooked up for about 12 years, then she died. Do you think I'm hard on ladies? I, I thought I was nice. Even though Gene has loved and lost, he certainly hasn't stopped. He goes on to describe his current love life. But um, life in the villages, I mean, well, was good. And now I'm in the home. The lady I was with, she passed away. But you know what? I met another lady. Did you really? I did. Yeah, how's that going? Going good. Yeah? Yeah. She's in the home with me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that, that. You guys works. hang out? We do. What do you guys do? We go to dinner together. That's about the hanging out. And we sit on the porch. Our driver's licenses have expired. So they have a jitney, that jitney there, mm-hmm. the Mission Oaks. That's where I live. If we get enough time, they will, she will take us to the restaurant. Oh, look at you going on restaurant things. How old are you? I'm only 92. Sadly, our time together had to come to an end. I guess we're we're ready to go back. Uh, Yeah, you're you're ready to load the bus. Oh, I'm going to get loaded. One last question. Do you have any wisdom that you'd like to pass on? Follow your dream. The bus pulled up and I quickly gave Gene a hug goodbye. And then he left. Because far be it from me to keep him from his restaurant date with his current lady friend. And Faith, how did you come to meet this gentleman? So all the veterans, they were all in a line so everyone could go through and shake hands. And he was near the end of the line. And every woman that went through, he had to make sure that he they got a kiss from him. And I was thinking... I know I need to talk to that guy. Yep, and that was it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you picked well. Thanks for the work, Faith. It sounds like a pretty good gig. I want to come with you the next time. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the story of Gene Nupp. Fought bravely for this country during World War II, and it's so true. There aren't many men left. And here on Our American Stories, we make a point of talking about our soldiers a lot. Soldiers who fought in wars so far back that it was at the beginning of our country, the Revolutionary War, our hour on George Washington, our time spent on the Battle of Yorktown, the Civil War, straight up to the most current wars and the most recent Medal of Honor winners. This is Our American Stories. Fates report from the villages. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for our On Leadership series, our own Alex Cortez interviewed Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, the best and most comprehensive cancer care center in the country. Centers, that is. And they're 100% dedicated to treating cancer and nothing else at their five facilities. And in addition to discussing leadership, Alex also talked with Steve about the fascinating founding of this company and its founder, Dick Stevenson. And we wanted to bring you this founding story on its own. We love founding stories. We've brought you Home Depots, Walmarts, the Myers. And actually, I think that the founding of The Godfather, and I like to link art and commerce, because when you hear that hour, the struggle that Mario Puzo had to make a novel, the struggle that Francis Ford Coppola had to turn that novel into a movie, these guys are entrepreneurs no different than Steve Jobs or Bernie Marcus. Here's Alex and his conversation with Steve Bonner on the founding of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. For Dick Stevenson, it was all too personal of a story, a death that led him to birth the company into life. So many healthcare companies and hospitals, you know, talk about being patient-centered and patient-driven and, and, you know, all this, what a lot of patients think is just nonsense verbiage. I mean, talk about how his story, you know, really makes Cancer Treatment Centers of America different. His passion came from his mother's experience. He wasn't a healthcare guy either. He was an international merchant banker, an investor, a lawyer, and um, <clears throat> his mother got cancer, and he used his global scope to identify a number of innovations that were truly innovative in the delivery of cancer care in America that he thought could be helpful, and he brought him back, and he was stopped at her bedside by the FDA and the AMA and the insurance companies, and as she died a very unhappy and painful death, he said, it sure seems like this industry cares more about the bureaucrats than it does about the patients. And so he decided to try to to create from the ground up a truly patient-centric model of care. The fact that this founding vision was deeply personal makes Cancer Treatment Centers of America stand apart from other healthcare providers. It's not that the others don't care, it's just not as personal. And that difference matters when you're dealing with the most personal of things, your health. So how did Dick Stevenson go about implementing his vision? You start out by marketing directly to patients, which nobody was doing Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, Everybody 
in cancer care was a referral model. So you build relationships with primary care physicians and you go on bended knee and say, send me your patients. So you guys were the first real advertiser? Yeah, in exactly. Space. And yeah. you do a, a significant amount of advertising today, but I, yeah. I don't know the history by of far, that. Now. By far the biggest media advertiser in uh, healthcare delivery. The big pharma, you know, may do more. But yeah, exactly. And so he said, if I build this and say it's patient-centric, but I need doctors to send me patients, the doctor is my primary customer, not the patient. Hmm. So I'm not going to do that. And it rippled through healthcare. He was a tiny speck, but here in Illinois, where he started, the medical association was livid. And he's proud of the fact that so far, I believe, he's still the only non-physician ever, really, ever formally sanctioned by the Illinois Medical Society, and he was sanctioned for advertising direct to patients. And now look, you know, everybody does that, right? A very similar story played out in the legal profession. Before 1977, lawyers were not allowed to advertise their services until two revolutionary Arizonans decided to challenge the bans, and the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. Thankfully for Dick, he didn't have to go to the Supreme Court. He won in the court of public opinion. But that also takes convincing a lot more than nine folks in robes. Quite a feat. And what else did he do to put this public first? He also had this model of <clears throat> holistic integrative care and wanted to focus on people with late-stage complex cancer, which is what his mom had, which was in the most sophisticated end of the spectrum in terms of technology and talent and uh, space. And uh, in order to do that, he knew we needed to have the very best traditional care, of chemo, radiation, surgery. But he also knew that if all we did was that, we were ignoring huge dimensions to the implications of the disease. If we didn't understand oncological nutrition, naturopathic intervention, psychological intervention, spiritual support, uh, exercise, humor therapy, laughter therapy, pet therapy, you know, everything that could de-stress this incredibly stressful event, then the immune system is working harder than it should work to support the care. And part of the irony of the Basic care in cancer is that we're assaulting the immune system at the very moment in time where it needs to be as good as it can be. You know, chemo is poison introduced as a general matter to the whole system. And Does so, anyone even come close to providing that broad <clears throat> array of services? Um, not the way, not on an integrated basis. And when we started out, all of that was heresy. All that complementary care was heresy. And that was selling false hope, snake oil sales, you know, all that stuff. And now you can't go to any cancer provider that doesn't offer nutrition and naturopathic intervention and so forth. As you know, too, with the market, you can't pull off that snake oil business for too long. If you're, if you're truly not presenting those broad array of services, you're going to get exposed. Right. Exactly. And if you keep bringing it to patients um, and then they decide, and part of our benefit was and is that Every patient we saw had been diagnosed somewhere else and treated somewhere else, and they were so dissatisfied that they were out looking for something different. Their patients are so dissatisfied with the cancer care they received elsewhere that they travel over 300 miles on average, one way to get to one of their five facilities. 
And Steve told me that there are a ton of folks from Alaska that make the trip all the way to their facility in Arizona. And just think about how many other states and providers they have to pass to get to Arizona. It's just remarkable. This reality is also a testament to the culture at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Because it's one thing to have a great founding vision and great practical ideas, but it's a whole other thing to create and cultivate the culture to implement them. How have they done this, and how have they maintained it over 29 years? Here's just one of the examples that Steve Bonner shared with me. We also never start a board meeting without having a patient talk to the board. Oh, wow. Ever start the board meeting with a patient on the board. And I talk to other CEOs and I say, how long since you've invited one of your customers to talk to the board, right? And eyebrows go over the top of their head and they say, well, what would they say? And I said, well, they might tell the truth, right? <laughs> Which is what they do. But it's such a compelling and uh, motivating window into what it is you're doing. You sit in these boardrooms and it's reimbursement and you know contracts and facilities and all that crap and to sit there and look at it through the eyes of a patient is really spectacular and this is another part of Dick's brilliance is that it's not just have them come and talk to you but it always goes to so what could we have done to make it better what can we do to make it better and now you're here not only based on what you've seen and heard but you talk to other patients tell us you know what have we done that could have been better how can we improve it and it's a pretty, it was a pretty disciplined process management then where we capture these ideas and we report back as a part of the minute structure, you know, did we really do something? And a couple times we uncovered something that was a big enough flaw and Dick stopped the board meeting. And he said, we have nothing more to meet here as a board until we fix this for this patient. And he literally, you know, end of meeting, management, go close this hole for this patient. And These, the, you have board members flying in from across the country. Yeah, for this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, the symbolism of that, and this ripples through the organization. You know, these patients who come and talk to the board, they don't just go home. They talk to all the other patients and what this like. And these things, in soft ways, just keep reinforcing this culture that it is about the patient, that that's what we care about. A lot of CEOs would be afraid of doing that. They don't want to. They won't intentionally bring in or, or invite the bad news for right. the board to hear. Right. Exactly. Which I think I understand, and it's hard. I mean, I sat in some very uncomfortable board meetings, and so did the hospital CEOs who sit there with us, because we didn't know. You know, for whatever reason, nobody had bothered to tell us. And here's this thing that's a hole in our game, and. You have to embrace that, right? You have to say it's like it's like market research. You know, if you don't go and ask the world about yourself, then don't get surprised when all of a sudden you get blindsided by your reality. You know, the fish doesn't know it's wet. You swim around in this stuff and you just don't think about it. And these opportunities to peel open the reality of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And it's n of one. It's a you know anecdotal, but the aggregation of anecdotes of you know hundreds of boards meetings over 30 years in the culture um, is really much more powerful than just anecdotes. The aggregation of anecdotes. And folks, we talk a lot about free enterprise here, and we talk about bureaucracies. And my goodness, Dick Stevenson solved a problem. His mom had died painfully. 
the patient wasn't the center of care. In our health care debates today, as you vote, as you think about voting, think about this segment. All the entrenched bureaucracies, not just the government, the health insurance companies, the hospitals themselves, the doctor associations, patient-centered care. Whichever candidate is talking about patient-centered care, vote for him or her. This is Lee Habib. We love these founding stories. This one may have been my favorite, connecting so much that matters in life, free enterprise, our health, our lives. Alex, great job on this. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Dick Stevenson, the founder of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Steve Bonner, the former CEO who brought this to all the public and to the American public, telling us the story of how it all came to be. This is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on the show, and one of our favorite subjects is family. And today you're in for a treat. John and Brody Coyle join us. Both of these guys played for the University of Alabama, the Crimson Tide, and I'm going well, to put aside our personal differences because we're broadcasting from Ole Miss uh, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, and they're an arch rival. John was the father. He played for Bear Bryant back in the 70s, won a national championship, could have gone into the NFL, but he didn't. He started the Big Oak Ranch, and he takes in kids there that their parents don't want or just can't raise. And over the years, well, he's taking care of 2,000 kids. Right now, they're taking care of 140 at the Big Oak Ranch. John Corll's son, well, he was raised at this ranch, and he ended up going to Alabama and being the star quarterback and ended up playing in the NFL. And you won't believe this, young Brody Corll is now back at that ranch living even after his NFL career and his really great career as a real estate developer. Thank you guys both for joining us. John, I want to start with you. I want to talk about where you were born. Tell us a little bit about your parents and your early life. Uh, i tell you what, I was very, very blessed. I had a great mom and dad. And uh, my dad uh, grew up really tough. As a matter of fact, uh, Brody and I talked, and my daughter and my wife, about if there had been a Big Oak Ranch for uh, children needing a chance, my dad would have qualified because he just had a dysfunctional family, to say the least. And he looked at me when I was in the little bassinet, and he made a promise to me. He said, I will never miss a game you play. And his dad never saw him play, and he played little uh, minor league semi-pro baseball and uh, his dad never saw him play his whole career. And that being said, uh, he kept his promise, with the exception of one time when there was a death in the family and he had to go take care of business. Other than that, he was always there, whether we were in Los Angeles or Dallas or all over the southeast, uh, playing for Coach Bryant, uh, he was always there. And um, they uh, they loved me. I mean, I, I wish I could make it complicated, but uh, I was their life, and they made sure that, when everybody else was being stupid, that he wasn't going to let me. And um, he was a little over guy, 5'11 guy from New York. But uh, 
I, I was afraid of him. I mean, even when I was a lot bigger than him, uh, he looked at me once. He said, it, it, you know, you're bigger, stronger, faster. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, it don't take big, strong, and fast to pull a trigger. And uh, that kind of cleared the air of confusion. And so uh, I had great parents. I was blessed. And, and your parents instilled certain values, uh, John, in you, I think, deep. Uh, talk about some of those. Talk about uh, faith in your family and what role that played, what it instilled in you and your life and your choices, John. Uh, my parents carried me to church every weekend. I mean, we we didn't miss a Sunday. And uh, I got to just witness him working, for example, working with youth groups. And I would see my dad take $10 and go buy a kid a glove because that kid's dad wouldn't or couldn't. And I just watched that my whole life. And that's one of the things we talk about as a family is that there's many things I do that now Brody does that we both learn from my dad. And, uh, like, you know, just uh, courtesy, and there's no excuse for rudeness, and there's no substitute for just being courteous to people. Be nice. And uh, that's one of the things I admire about my dad and Brody, too, is uh, I've, I've never seen Brody be rude to anyone that wanted an autograph or a picture. He's always been very kind about that, and we both learned it from my dad. And I would assume that your dad taught you a little bit about work, too, John. Talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, when, he, when I was little, he said, don't do it if you're going to do it half-baked, uh, but he didn't say baked. And uh, yeah. we have uh, applied that now to our lives, and uh, that's one thing that's really neat is, is when people come to the ranch, they see um, quality without extravagance. And uh, we think if you're going to do it, just do it right, build it to last, and because uh, it's going to wear your name and our family's name. And uh, that's one of the things I learned from him, and uh, now our, our grandchildren learn that from their dads. And you had another male role model, and I want to talk briefly about him now, John, for about a minute. And then, Brody, we're going to talk a bit about uh, this role model and this mentor, too. And his name was Bear Bryant. And, John, just for about a, a minute or two, talk about some of the things that you and the boys who played for Bear learned from him off the grid, off the X's and O's, off the football field. Uh, what did you learn from him, and what did he teach you as men? Um, show your class, have a plan, work hard, and uh, when your ribs are cracked and your finger is dislocated, uh, you put it back in place and you keep playing. Uh, there's no room for quitting. And his theory was if he could make you quit on Tuesday, you would quit on Saturday. And to be honest, Saturday was the easiest day of the week because uh, getting prepared for Saturday. But I think the very first meeting, he set the tone. He said, quote, don't show me how good you are. Don't prove to me what you've got. He said, just join us and let's win the national championship. And that was it. And we lost one regular season game in three years. We won a national championship my senior year. And uh, we have just been so very blessed to, to take many of the things he taught us and apply them now with our children and um, uh, mental, mental toughness. I mean, that's missing with a lot of kids today. And, and, and I know Brody's on the phone with us, but uh, he's mentally the toughest man I know. And uh, I have just watched him in his whole career. And I learned a lot of that from my dad and from Coach Bryant. Well, hold that thought, John. And when we come back, more on this remarkable father-son story about male mentorship and about so much more. This is Lee Habib, John and Brody Croyle for the hour. A remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and we continue with John and Brody Quarrel, and we were talking about male mentorship, we were talking about moms, and now the subject of fatherlessness. And John, you had uh, just been talking about Bear Bryant. I remember you telling me a story once about Bear Bryant saying that in, in the end, life comes down to a few key plays. Talk about that, because I think it's so important, not just metaphorically for football, but I think in all of life. You know, Lee, um, before every ball game, 36 times I heard him say, in this game, there's going to be four or five plays that will determine the outcome of the ball game. You may be the hero, you may be the coach, but rest assured the plays are coming. And there's people listening to the three of us right now. And if I or you or Brody were to say, name five plays that changed your life, every adult can go to those five plays right now with no hesitation. Some are positive. Some are negative, but we've all got those plays. And, and for me, uh, just it's just been a series of plays where, and and I, I hope that you know uh, I come across the right way with this. But God's got a plan for all of us, and if we'll just listen and listen carefully and then follow that plan, everything's going to be just fine. And um, that's one of the things we learned. And and when I was nineteen, one of the plays in my life was just meeting a little boy whose mother was a prostitute, and he was the banker and the timekeeper for his mom, and I told that little boy he could become a Christian. He came back the following year and told me word for word what I taught him the summer before, and I realized at 19 I had been given a gift, and I know it is rare to know why you got put on earth at 19, but it just worked out perfectly, and then Coach Bryant was instrumental in getting us to build a home for children, and 2,000 children have benefited from what he and my dad have taught in me. Well, it's interesting, you know, when in your, you're in your senior year, here's Coach Bryant, who's legend for sending boys to the NFL, and you have this crisis. You're not sure you want to go to the NFL, and if you do, you're only going for the money because you want to help kids. You want to work at a ranch or something. You have something in your head that says, God's gifted me with this. And talk about that moment with Bear, because you're seeking his guidance, John. You're seeking his mentorship, and what happens on that, that, that? I think that's one of the big plays in your life, too. It must be. What does Coach tell you, and what happens next? Uh, very simply put, um, leadership is simple. Uh, you got to know where you're going, and you're able to persuade people to go with you. And he had that in loads. I mean, just dripping out his nose. And I went to see him and said, Coach Brian, I'd like to get the money from the ball and start a home for children. And he looked at me and did not hesitate. He said, don't play pro ball unless you're willing to marry it. He said, go build that ranch you've been talking about. I walked out of his office and never looked back. And I say this with all humility, Lee. I, I have never been depressed. I've been mad, angry, tired, exhausted, filled with anger. I mean, I've been all those, but I've never been depressed because uh, I'm running on the road that he and others have helped build. Yeah, and it was interesting. You, you, know, you, you must have left that office thinking, okay, I'm going to start a ranch. How do I do that? How do I do that? And yet in came, John, in came the love. I mean, in came money for you to support that vision. Some from some local businessmen. Talk about one guy who really stepped up, a guy you played some ball with in Alabama, who went on to be, well, in the Hall of Fame. All right. Uh, John Hanna, he and I came into Alabama as freshmen, and uh, he is, by many standards, the best offensive lineman to ever play in the NFL. As a matter of fact, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And John had a tremendous career. And um, 
he and I met just before I was getting ready to get started with the ranch, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm raising support to build this home for children. He said, say what? Uh, what do you need? I said, 30. He said, well, that's my bonus for that year in 1974. And he gave us his bonus, and we took that money and started Big Oak Ranch, and uh, he's been a friend for a long time. And he jumped in when a lot of people didn't want to. Um, so we have just been so very, very blessed. And that first year, we took his money and another friend, purchased the land, and I'm literally sitting in the yard, and I just said, Lord, I'm willing. And uh, that's all God wanted to hear, and the rest is history. Yep, and the rest is history. And, and Brody, you know, you grew up uh, around this guy, this, this John Crawl. Uh, talk about your dad, and and don't blush, John. And maybe you need to even turn it off for a minute. But Brody, tell <laughs> tell tell the country about your relationship with your dad. You growing up, what did you see? How is your life different than some of the other boys you knew? Tell me about your early life, Brody, and and what was, what it was like growing up on a ranch like the Big Oak Ranch, which, by the way, folks, is in Gadsden, Alabama, a beautiful place to live. Well. Uh... The best way that I know how to explain it is actually a story that goes with my son and the birth of my first son. And I'm sitting there, and he's now five years old. And you know how it is when you have a baby. And everybody comes in, and they're all excited, and they're gushing about how pretty he is and how, which, you know, it's got to be a lot sometimes because there's some newborns that just, man, they just got a, just a goofy look about them. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But mine, of course, was not. Right, but, uh, of I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he came in, and he was the last one to come in. And uh, he had kind of let everybody else like he does and like he was raised by his dad, and uh, we all try and follow suit. You know, you let everybody else go first, and you, you're the last one. And uh, so he was the last one to kind of come in and uh, do all that and get to hold his grandson. And uh, he had something in his pocket, and uh, he handed me something, and I – you know, like your dad's giving you something for the first time, you know, as a first time dad, you're kind of expecting this, that or other. And it's a compass. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, well, all right, dad, well, thanks for the compass. He goes, you know what it is? I was like, not really. He said, it's called a lensatic compass. And basically what it is back in World War One, uh, back before all this technology and everything, the commander would call in and he would call or the general would call in and he'd tell his captains, all right, I want you to go. 110 by 100 degrees north, northeast, wants you to find your mark, and you could take that compass and you could lock it in on that mark, and no matter which way you spun, no matter how lost you got, you could always find your true north. And uh, he said, and you get to that spot and you wait for the next instruction. And he said, he said, bud, you're entering into being a dad. He said, uh, never lose sight of your true north. He said, always understand what your true north is. He said, there's going to be a lot of seasons. There's going to be a long journey. He said, but always stick to your true north and what that true north lies in. He said, and if you do that, he said, I'm going to go to your boy in 18 years. He said, I'm going to go to Sawyer, and I'm going to say, Sawyer, who's the godliest man that you know? And he said, buddy, if you stay to that true north, he said, he's going to look me dead in the eyes, and he's going to say, my daddy's the godliest man that I know. And I tell you that story to tell you that – uh my dad is the godliest man that I know, and it is because he always stuck to his true north. It is because he never wavered. He was always the same man every single day, 
And I always tell people the best way to learn is to watch. And I got to literally watch the best, and he and my mom live it every single day. That's a beautiful story, Brody. And you grew up on the ranch, didn't you? Talk about that. You're around all these kids. And now you've got to be, in a sense, the true north to them, don't you? Uh, you know what? Growing up, uh, I was just one of the boys. And that's I literally went straight from the hospital to the ranch. Yep. It was the only life that I ever knew. And... Those were my brothers, and those were my sisters at the girls' ranch, and they were no different than me. The only difference is that I had my real mom and dad, and my, my parents raised me to look at it that way, and I now live at the ranch with my two boys, and they have 70 brothers that live here with them and 70 sisters at the girls' ranch, and they're looking at it the exact same way. And you know what? That is a, uh, that's a great perspective that, um, you know, I've my parents instilled in me and my sister and our family is that you know what we're very blessed that uh because we get to see the other side of it and we get to see the parents that didn't want the job we get to see the parents that struggle with different things and can't handle uh taking care of their own children and uh the awesome awesome part is that god's called us that we get to play a small role and get to fill that void and bridge that gap so uh all these kids and, you know, the 140 we take care of on a daily basis and the 2,000 that have been here now know what family looks like because God placed a calling on a man's life 43 years ago. Well, what a blessing that you followed in your dad's footsteps. You know, you went into the NFL, Brody, and a lot of guys go into the NFL and the North Star becomes, well, you know what the North Star becomes for guys in the NFL. And yeah. it's, it's tragic and it's sad. If you, don't, if you get that much money that young and that much fame, Well, life gets difficult. On the other side, we're going to take a break here. We're going to continue our conversation with Brody and then bring back John because I want to have the story told of how this place, the Big Oak Ranch, got formed and, more importantly, how it evolved from a place for boys to a ranch for girls. This is Lee Habib, an extraordinary father-son story, one of my favorites, and we spend a lot of time on the subject, folks. John Croyle, Brody Croyle, for the hour. This is Our American Stories. is our american stories and we're back with john and brody coyle and brody we were just talking about the nfl i just you know talked a bit about it and you know you you were there you were on the cover of sports illustrated my goodness as a young man and and then you find yourself in the nfl talk about how important it was to have a dad like you had and that north star that you had in your head and and i believe also this this relationship you had with god how did that help protect you from many of the Let's just say the trappings that can come with instant fame and a whole lot of cash, Brody. Uh, well, you know, growing up the way that I grew up and growing up grounded the way that I grew up obviously helped. But you know what? Uh, no one is above uh, getting sucked in by that. No one is above uh, 
the lifestyle that comes with that. And I'm no different, you know. And honestly, I mean, I didn't do a lot of the things and end up in the media and in the news for doing. But you know what? When I was 11 years old, I walked in to uh, actually my parents' room, and I never played one down of organized football. And I walked in, I looked at them, I said, I'm going to play in the NFL. And versus telling me, hey, buddy, why don't we worry about making the JV squad or something like that? <laughs> yeah. They uh, they said, shoot for the moon, man. Worst case scenario, we'll end up in the stars. And uh, I'm ashamed to say, to a fault, football became my god at that point in time. Now, don't get me wrong. I could, I could say all the right things, and I could do all the right things. And maybe in my mind, I thought that I still had my priorities straight. But football became my god. It's all I chased. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I've heard something the other day. If God's not first on your list, he's not on your list. So, uh I fell victim to that, and I chased it, and I loved everything that went along with it. But we always talk about, you know, at the ranch, if you know who you are, you know what you are, and you know why you're here, then God will honor that, and you'll, you know why you're put on earth and what your purpose is. And uh, I had a foundation that I always knew what to come back to. And uh, I was blessed. I have a godly wife, and I have a godly family that, uh, literally lived it every day and uh, let me watch. And uh, that foundation and that um, uh, just loving spirit and that knowing where you come from. I mean, I've, I've had 11 surgeries. I've had three broken vertebras. I've had dislocated ribs. I've had broken ribs. I've had dislocated jaws. I was always too small to play football. I was just too stupid to understand it. Uh, so I always knew what the other side looked like that a lot of people don't get to see on the glamour part of it. Yep. But at the same point in time, every time I'd have a setback, every time I'd have a bump in this journey, that was God obviously getting my attention saying, Hey, shift it back to me, bud. come on back to me. But there was also where I grew up. I'd sit there and, you know, I'd feel sorry for myself for a little bit. And, uh, literally a couple of days into it, I could sit there and go, I got six months of rehab. And I got boys and girls that I grew up with. They're literally just trying to put the pieces of their life back together. And it always put it back into perspective for me. Yeah, and we all need it. We I don't know how anybody – actually, frankly, I don't know how people live without it or get through without it. John, let's go back now. You, you, you've approached Bear Bryant. You've gotten this help to start a ranch. But you don't know what, what the heck you're doing. I mean, you have maybe some vision in your head. Some might say still doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> some might. Some might. So you, you stumble out there. How do you find your first kids? What do you do? Tell the story of that first year, that first two, of just getting it going. And, and talk about the self-doubt for all the folks out there who have doubts. And I, don't, I think it's the most human thing in the world to have doubts. The key is how you fight through those doubts. You have fears. How do you fight through those fears? Talk about all of that if you can, John. To be blunt, uh, we purchased the land, and uh, I was sitting in the front yard with my dog, and that was all we had was a 120-acre ranch, a 1,200-square-foot farmhouse, and within two weeks, we had five boys. We got one out of a boxcar at a uh, tire company. We got one out of a barn. We got one out of a home in New Orleans. We got one out of a um, home up in Boston, Massachusetts that he set fire to. I mean, we had five boys in two weeks. And one thing I've learned and, and, and our family believes, attempt something so great for God that it's destined for failure unless he is in it. 
And based upon that, I was just stupid enough to say, come on, God, let's go. I'm willing. And uh, that first boy is now 61 years old, and he's a grandfather. And um, one one of the things that really worked, and and I'm going to kind of toss it back a minute, is uh, I looked at my wife the other day, and uh, I said, you know what I told somebody today? And she said, what? I said, somebody asked me what you were like. And she said, what would you tell them? I said, my wife thinks I can do anything. And uh, that kind of support is the reason Brody is where he is. You are, I am, any man that's made it, he's got that that core belief that his mates right there with him fighting the fight. And uh, my wife has known this, and then Brody's wife jumped in, and the best line I've ever heard my daughter-in-law say is when he told her he wanted to go back to the ranch, and she said, "Tell me when, and I'll have us packed." Wow. Now, how many? How many? 22, 23-year-old kids that have been married for, you know, just a short period of time, look at their husband and say, you tell me when, I'm in. Wow. Uh, that's strong. And as a matter of fact, if anything ever happens to Kelly and Brody, I don't care where he goes, Kelly's coming home with me. <laughs> so uh, it's all good. Now talk about he your, means that, too. Talk about your bride, because here you are, you're on the cusp of, I mean, you could have gone into the NFL, you could have done a lot of things with your life, and you're sitting there with this dream in your head. Talk about, you know, first sharing that with her. And did she look at you like you were crazy? Um, did she say, I'm in? Did she have the same faith you had about this vision? Real quickly, um, uh, I asked her to marry me on the boys' ranch. And I said, I love you. Will you marry me? And we're going to have 80 boys. She said, let's go through them one at a time. And uh, we went through them again. And uh, she said something about three years ago that just nailed me. Uh, I'd always said, I got chosen to do this. She chose to come do it, and she had a choice. And uh, anyway, she looked at me about three years ago. She said, did it ever cross your mind maybe I was chosen too? <laughs> I picked up my legs. I picked up my heart. I busted. Thing in busted. Major busted. <laughs> major that, busted. And uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, she, she's had every reason to just tell me goodbye. But uh, she's been here 42 years, and um, we're where we are now because of Brody's mama. But, Brody, let's talk about your mom, uh, because John just talked about his bride. But talk about your mom and the role she's played in your development and how it's helped you in some ways to even choose your wife. Because in the end, if we see what a mom looks like... <laughs> then this informs us when we go to choose our wives. It's just funny you say that. That's why Dad and I both are laughing. Because, uh, <laughs> one, my mother my mother is just, uh, I mean, when I was growing up, just to keep the doors open, uh, I mean, Dad would speak, you know, 300 times a year. So, I mean, he was on the road a lot. And uh, so my mother is a strong, strong woman that uh, is just a godly woman that uh, she is a calculus teacher, and there she won, so she's typically smarter than you and everything. And then secondly, there is no gray. You're either right or you're wrong. <laughs> so uh, there was never any uh, talking her into anything. You're either right or you're wrong. And uh, my mother is just a great, great woman. But we, we both giggled because uh, there's so many things, I mean, like all of us, that we grow up and we go, man, I'm definitely not going to marry somebody like that. Like the things that get on your nerves about your mom or your dad, and you're sitting there and going, man, there's no way. I can't wait. And then I married someone who is exactly like her. 
like carries herself the same way, has the same fiery spirit, the same will put you in your place in a heartbeat. And uh, I honestly, I couldn't be more blessed. And my two little boys couldn't be more blessed because of the precedent that my mother set and honestly the precedent that uh, my wife's family set. And uh, now my boys get to grow up and have the same uh, characteristics in a godly woman. And like you said, now they understand and they get to look for because they get to watch every day. And then one day, uh, I pray that they marry somebody just like their mama and just like their grandmama because uh, those are two great women. We're talking to John and Brody Croyle. And when we come back, a final segment with this remarkable father-son team, this remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and we continue with John and Brody Coral. And we were talking about male mentorship. We were talking about moms, and now the subject of fatherlessness. When we do father-son segments, uh, one of the things we've learned about fatherlessness is not just the impact it has on boys, their propensity to join gangs, their propensity for jail, for drug abuse, for violence. Uh, and we know why that happens. We're guys, but what happens to women without fathers is a tale that's not told often enough. And so, John, ultimately, you have this uh, big oak ranch for boys. Tell the story that got you to think about something special for those girls. Uh, one of the plays of my life, I was walking down the hallway of a court. And I glanced down. I was walking with a social worker. And uh, there was a little 12-year-old girl sitting there. She had honey blonde hair that was really dirty. And uh, she looked up, and she had beautiful, beautiful, sad green eyes. And she had been raped by her father while her mother held her down. And uh, we do what we do for a living. And, and our family, we can spot an abused child about a mile away. And uh, that's all we've known. And uh, I just glanced down at her, and um, I, I picked her up. And I remember uh, they'd had to do a hysterectomy to put her back together. And uh, she was just destroyed. And uh, I told the judge, if you send her back home, the father will do it again and kill her in six months. I was wrong. Uh, he did it in three months and killed her. And I promised God that when the time was right, we'd build a home for girls. So there's that anchor in the ground, that stake that will not move. And uh, that's why now we have a 325-acre ranch in Springville. And uh, there's uh, approximately 70 girls living there that are getting a chance at life. And we're trying to explain it. I'm, I'm going to quote Brody on this one when he says, we show girls what a real family and a real mom and dad look like and what a real father figure looks like and uh, that is just so essential and there's women listening to us right now that would give anything they own to have their dad just look at them as they were going up and said you know what you're my princess and you're the most beautiful little girl i've ever seen and i love you they've never heard that and they are literally scarred for life and when they marry it takes a special man to lift them out of that dungeon of um, self-doubt and self-confidence. And um, that's just what we've seen. And now when 
I see Brody walk in, and a little girl runs up and hugs his neck, and he just uh, looks at her and says, as long as we breathe, no one's ever going to ever hurt you like that again. That's a very good day. That's a great day. And, you know, I, I have a bride who, who whose mom worked real hard, but she was a single mom, and my bride was vulnerable, and, and she fell into sexual abuse with a, a man in the family who just took advantage of the opportunity. And it, it cost my wife dearly, and... Uh, in the end, Scarter in ways that you know to this day it, it still lingers, and she talks routinely with young young women about this and older women about the impact of not having a father present um, and the sexual abuse part. Uh, the guys, as you well know, because you this is what your life is. The numbers are off the charts. Why do you think it is? What are the women looking for because of that absent father? What do you think's actually going on psychologically with these kids, Bro? Do you want to take that? that we say if you hadn't ever seen it how are you ever going to repeat it and uh the thing that is so dad always told me he said the hardest thing you're going to be able to have to do he says when a little girl comes up and she thinks she doesn't even know who god is we had somebody the other day that was doing a devotion one of our house dads was doing a devotion with his kids and uh with his and one, he's like, man, I felt like I just, I was so prepared and I was so ready and I was ready for this devotion. And man, he's like, I was teaching calculus. And he said, we had a new boy and literally I'm halfway through the devotion and the boy looks at me and he goes, who's Jesus? He's like, it was the biggest slap in the face to me because he's like, I had no clue because I just assumed. And we have girls that go, so this Jesus you're talking about, um, He's everywhere, right? Sure is, baby. He's all. He's got a great plan for everybody's life. Sure does, baby. Well, where was he when my dad was hurting me? And that's a hard, hard question that, honestly, we on this earth probably don't have the answer to. Right. But the best way that I know how to tell you of what God can do and how God can, I mean, he obviously uses us and uses uh, his children as lights for him and the best way for our kids to understand the love of a father and the love of their creator and the love of their father is to see it through their parents and unfortunately I mean, we had a little girl that was from the time she was five until she was 15 she was raped every single day by her dad and that was the life that she knew and i got to sit there and i got to look at that little girl and i got to make her the same four promises that my dad has made for the past 40 years and i got to look at her and i got to say baby i love you I don't want anything in return. Just give us an opportunity to earn your love back. I said, I'll never lie to you. Anybody sitting in this room and in that room would be me, my sister, my dad, the director, the social worker, the house parent, anybody that's going to have an integral part in her life is going to be in that room. It's like if anyone in this room lies to you, they're fired on the spot. Do you understand? She's like, mm-hmm. I said, we'll stick with you till you're grown. We, this coming fall, we'll have 25 kids in college. And said, whatever it is you want to do in life, we want to help you get there. I said, in four, there's boundaries don't cross them. She went, all right. I said, baby, you get a fifth promise. And Dad said it earlier. And I, I just looked at her and I said, baby, as long as I breathe, nobody's ever going to hurt you like that again. Do you understand me? And she went, okay. And uh, some kids literally get it instant. Some kids that are abused, especially girls, will just, it's like, here, you take this. Get it off of me. Uh, and they will spill everything just to say, you know, it's off me now. And, thank you some kids it takes years some kids we don't ever get to see the fruit and uh but you know what that's okay and for a year and a half 
this girl fought. And, man, she pushed, and she just pushed her house parents to the brink every day, made sure that everything that I had told her was we were going to hold up our end of the bargain because everybody in her life had let her down because she had had that trust muscle ripped out of her so many times by the man that was supposed to protect her. And literally, after a year and a half, she went up to her house, Dad, the same man that the first week she was there and they had got through having dinner, she walked up to him and goes, is this when we go have sex now? Because that's the only life that she had ever known. She finally, she told, she finally told us, she said, I started to say yes, just where it wouldn't hurt so bad, where I didn't feel like I was getting raped. And after a year and a half, she went up to that same man and she says, I don't know what it is you got. She said, but I want it. And they got to share with her how to become a Christian, how to change her life. And why do I tell you that story? Is because he showed her the love of a father. And she finally understood that, you know what, that man that used to do that to me and that man that used to hurt me and that man that pushed me to the brain, that man that made me question life and who I was and if I wanted to continue it, now she's gotten a year and a half with a godly man showing her what a father and what a father's love is supposed to look like. And because of that, she's now going to spend eternity in heaven because she now can understand the love of a father in heaven. Uh that is a good day, and that is uh, what we get to do on a daily basis. And people have said, you know, well, what if y'all would take Christian out of your name? What if they push you to take Christian out of your name? And you know what? That day might be coming, that they try to push us to do that. And they say, well, you know, we'll take away your 501c3. We'll do that unless y'all have Christian out of your name. You know what? We know that there is no change uh, without God Almighty. And uh, we know there is no change without that Christian thing. We know there is no change without showing the love of a uh, father, which then they can understand what they were put on life for. And uh, unfortunately, the abuse and the um, level of abuse and level of sexual abuse is getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, but that's what we get to do, and that's the kids that we get to help. And uh, I... People ask me all the time now, where do you see the ranch going? I say, man, I'd love for us to be out of business in 20 years. That would be amazing. That means no kids are getting hurt. That means no kids are seeing pain. That means no kids are getting raped by their fathers. But unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction. And uh, we will continue to uh, just follow that lead and follow God's lead and uh, continue to offer uh, what he intended for a family to be. Well, and as I told you guys during the break, and Brody, and I thank your dad for this, um, because of these stories, I had not been a believer. I was, I had a child and I needed something more than what my dad taught me. He was not a believer. And, uh, ultimately witnessing the power of love, the inexplicable power that could have come from no other source. It led me to Christ myself. And, uh, and we don't get that personal on the show. I don't tend to share my own views, but on this one, I, I have no other option. And I just want to thank you, John, for what you did for me, what you've done for all these kids, and, and what you've done uh, for, for, for God, because in the end you're serving him doing what you do. And it must have just tickled you, John, to hear your son telling that story. It is, and uh, my wife and I, every morning we wake up, we pinch ourselves of how blessed we are. And um, I, I want to say this to anybody who listen to us. You can't be bad enough that God won't come get you. And you can't run far enough away that his hand is not on the other side trying to pull you back home. So we've all been there. 
and nobody's got it going on. But the neat thing about it is, Lee, you, me, Brody, our family, we will spend the rest of eternity together. And uh, I saw an atheist I met, and he just said, well, I don't believe in God. Said, That's okay. You will meet him one day. And so it's all good. And so we're just blessed that you let us be a part of what you're sharing with the nation. Well, thank you guys both, and I'm going to get out and visit you, I promise, and it'll happen in the next 30 days, and I look forward to seeing you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lee. That was great. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. John and Brody Coral. We've had them for the hour, and my goodness, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did.